This is the Common Sense Podcast presented by Tamar. I'm your host, Tamar Weinberg, founder and CEO of Tamar, and I will be talking to people of all walks of life who have suffered adversity and overcome to rise above the ashes and now make self-care and wellness an absolute priority. Hi, everybody. Today, I have an amazing guy. I He gave me a story, and I purposely forgot it so that he could share it again. Uh, Scott Jarzenbeck, you are a, well, tell me a little bit about yourself. Thank you so much for coming. So I'm the executive director of the Albany Public Library. It's the largest school district library in the state. Uh, we serve the entire city of Albany, which is the capital of New York. I always like to remind people of that. Uh, we have seven branches, staff of around 130, 140, um, and we have about 65,000 cardholders. So we're a really well-used organization in the city and a really great resource. Um, I've been doing that for about six years now. It was actually six years in June. Um, I actually started my career with Albany Public Library. I fell into libraries totally by happenstance and fell upon um, my job at Albany Public Library kind of the same way. I started as a, a digital literacy instructor. So what I did was I ran a computer lab and taught computer literacy classes. Um, I was in grad school at the time. You need a master's degree in information science to be a librarian. So I, I kind of just ended up in the job I um, was there for about nine years. I worked predominantly at the Howe Branch, which is a branch in the south end of Albany, which is kind of uh, a, an area that has struggled in the last hundred years with you know, socioeconomic issues. So it was, you know, an underserved community that I was really happy to be a part of. Did that for about nine years. And then for about five years, I kind of floated around getting uh, managerial and, and um, leadership experience kind of around the state. And then I came back six years ago and I've been the executive director ever since. And uh, I, I definitely have grown into the job. Awesome. Awesome. So I, I have to ask you, maybe, I don't know if I'm challenging you here, but you say it's the largest school district library system in the state. I guess that means in New York City is, is lag, lagging behind there? No, 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 no. New York City, uh, the New York Public Library is a different type of library. There are multiple types of library systems throughout the state. Uh, no, New York Public is much bigger than ours. Uh, and so is, you know, so is Queens and so is Brooklyn. Um, but for the type of library that we are, we're, we're kind of a we're kind of a quasi municipal entity. In other words, we have our own board of governance that's elected and we and the school district collects separate taxes for us. So we're almost like a mini government and there's a lot of live there there's a, a significant amount of libraries that operate that way across the state of new york okay cool 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 yeah um I, I i am part of the i guess i'm in the westchester county area so i guess i do you're you're definitely you're very likely bigger than we are <laughs> so i don't know i don't even know what our quantities are i can't imagine i don't know i don't know yeah but yeah okay so um, tell me, I, I know you had a, you you have a story and you wanted to share your story, and I would love to uh, talk and learn a little bit about like where you've come and how where you are today. Sure. Yeah. So you know what. What I always like to point out is I had a very different road uh, to being a librarian and a library director than most people. You know, librarians are viewed kind of as it's kind of an academic job. Um, however, I was not a good student. It, when I was in fourth grade, I was struggling. Uh, first, I struggled with kind of a, I, I had a, I was tongue tied. Took a few years for my family to figure that out. Um, so I had some speech impediments early in my 
uh, early in my life. And then after that, I just was not catching up academically. And this was, you know, fourth grade. I was going to a parochial school. It was a small school. I was just really lucky that I had a mother who kind of stayed on top of stuff. And she had, uh, you know, an IEP done for me, which was, this was in the 80s and people weren't really doing IEP or, or talking about special education or learning disabilities the way they talk about them now. And in fourth grade, um, I was given an IEP and I was found to have uh, a learning disability. And um, it really changed kind of my viewpoint on the world and it really changed the way I had to navigate through the world. And even today, some of those things around, some some of my some of my disability shows up in my day to work. Day work. Um, but the first thing it really did was I had to actually be shipped every day. I had to get on a small school bus, a short school bus, and ride from the parochial school to the public school. So first, I'm fourth, fifth, sixth grader. I'm this kid in a Catholic school uniform going into the, the big bad public school, as everybody viewed it, um, you know, to go to a resource room, to go to a special ed classroom. And that, you know, struggled socially, um, you know, with other children, especially in the parochial school, because I was an outlier. I was, you know, odd and and different and I was doing special ed and um, you know that definitely caused some real issues and made me um, view the world very differently and then going to public school and being in a Catholic school uniform and experiencing public school for like an hour a day uh, that was really a great experience and luckily I convinced my mom to switch me to the public school in eighth grade but you know just having that having my toes in both worlds really made me view life and how to approach people differently. Yeah, I certainly see that. Um, I'll give you a little bit of interesting background on my part. I grew up in a uh, predominantly Jewish community. Um, and I mean, my surroundings were 100%, 100% um, like Jewish day school, Jewish synagogue, Jewish activities. Uh, when I was nine, I went to a camp that was a little more diverse for me, but I was bullied. So I didn't really have, I didn't get the reception that I, I guess I, I, I had to basically withdraw socially. And when I was about 16, 17, I spent a summer at, uh, at Brandeis University doing a diverse summer program, which was, Brandeis is, is known or was known at that time as being more of a Jewish college. So I guess my parents, given the upbringing that I had is like, oh yeah, let me send my daughter to college there because she would mostly be among like-minded or like religious minded individuals and fortunately i would say that it was it was it was this the the minority was the jews were in the minority and for me it was like eye-opening it was actually the focus of my college essay that i was able to grow and become such a i don't know i would say because of my upbringing not because not in like because of not in spite of but like just because of you know where i've been you know, I was close-minded and I want to say judgmental, but like all of a sudden, like I appreciate it. That the word tolerance, I would say, is, is the word I would like to use. You know, all of a sudden I became tolerant of everybody around me. And it was like, OMG, this is the coolest thing ever. There are a lot of awesome people out there. Yeah, it's, I just became so appreciative of who I was and who everybody else was and how I learned from people from different walks of life. I didn't really have that. I didn't, I didn't feel like I had that exposure when I was younger in a way that I could potentially flourish and grow from. So, yeah. You know, one of the best things that could have happened to me is one of the components of being in the special ed program in my, in the district I grew up in was a summer school. 
And at first, uh, I think my mom viewed it as, okay, here's three weeks of free camp. Um, but it was a really great experience because it was, um, it, you were, there were some more challenged individuals that went to the camp um, and seeing kind of the neurodiversity was, was eye opening to me and just human, you know, like it just brought a new face to people and what they were dealing with and, and what, what adversity they were overcoming in their life. And, you know, in the eighties, again, you, you just, you didn't see that you didn't experience it. They, and especially in a parochial school and being in that summer school just really taught me. So it's where I learned how to curse. Um, so I don't know if my mom would be thrilled with that, but, uh, you know, it really just, it, it, it opened my world up to people who came from different uh, races, ethnicities, religions, and, and socioeconomic standing. And it really made me kind of, again, yeah, appreciate the world and appreciate our differences more than, you know, than, than I would have been able to just by reading about other people in a book or an after school program. Actually being involved and immersed and being part of a community. And it almost was like a community. Being in the special ed program was like being in a community. Some of the few people I still talk to from high school were actually, um, you know, in my resource room. So uh, there is there was a community and, and, and it was a great diverse community um, that I don't know even, even if I had gone to public school, but I hadn't been in the special ed program, I'm not sure I would have interacted with some of, I would would not have become friends with some of the people I had if it wasn't for the fact that I was in a special ed program. Yeah, yeah, same here. I, you know, these are walks of life that I would never have potentially taken, you know, held hands with and, and gone on that path if not for the fact that I've done this and have been in an experience. And I will say that I learned how to curse in, in Jewish day school. So it sounds like to me that you would have been okay uh, wherever you were, and it was—it's sort of inevitable. You just—it's part of—it's uh, hashtag growing up these days. You just gotta hashtag it all. Yeah. yeah. So um, yeah, uh, I wanted to ask you something about that. Uh, do you consider yourself like? I know that this is like your story and your upbringing. Um, do you consider yourself like? Do you, I suspect you don't define yourself? You don't like you talk about the disability and how how it sometimes still, you, you still think about it in your daily work, but uh, do, do you, do you think, are you cognizant of it? Like, oh, oh, absolutely. Uh, especially being in a leadership position, um, you know, and being in a, being in an educational sphere and an academic sphere, I have to do a lot of writing and that's where the majority of my learning disability comes into play. I actually, I teach at SUNY Albany. I teach uh, uh, in the, uh, the, the information science program at SUNY Albany, uh, the iSchool, and I teach an administration, you know, a class of administration. And I explain to my students, it's like, you know, you're going to see slides, there might be some spelling mistakes. Um, there may be some grammatical errors in some of the emails that I write you. Uh, one thing that happens with me is, is that I have to reread something three or four times after I write it in order to figure out all the grammatical errors and spelling errors. Um, and sentence structure, I flip sentence structure around. So I'm very aware of it. I also, I think it improves my approach to students when it comes to education. And I do kind of identify, you know, myself as someone who grew up in special ed. Um, you know, I, I do think that's a part of who I am and I share, I share the story. And sometimes people are really surprised how willing I am to share the story, but it's because it defined who I was. I mean, I just, 
I was, you know, made to feel slightly like an outcast at a very early age. So I gravitated towards things like punk rock and skateboarding. Um, and I think that may not have happened. I grew up in a very traditional, uh, I grew up on a farm. My dad was a truck driver. I grew up in a very traditional house. I was an altar boy. Um, you know, I actually thought about being a priest. Um, and then once uh, I, I got my IEP and once I started uh, going to resource room and being a part of special ed, I really started to rebel. And that's when I got into punk rock because I just, I felt like an outlier and, I, and it did define me, but Instead of taking something and letting it define me in a negative way, I found a really positive subculture that that fit in. And, you know, I am really proud of of not only not only taking my learning disability and using it as a strength, but also accepting the fact that I was different and really embracing it by the subcultures that I involved myself in. Right, right. Yeah, I I think that's amazing. I, I think it, you know, I love that you you're turning what most people would perceive as like a fatal flaw, if you will, but you're making you're making it approachable, especially when you go to your students. They're like, hey, you know, I'm I might make mistakes. You know, I think we we as a culture, as a human culture, we're very perfectionist minded, and I I until just a few years ago, I, that's exactly where I wanted to be. I always wanted to be a perfectionist, but I was depressed. And yet being a perfect, it didn't even go in tandem. And then like, as I'm like coming out of my depression, um, I remember like my daughter's like first grade teacher saying, we're not perfect. And I said to myself, you know, I had, I had this, like I, the fact that she's saying that, like, you know, but she's trying to teach perfectionism, isn't she? And, you know, all of a sudden I started embracing that and I'm like, wait a minute, you know what? I don't care. Like, you're right. I'm not perfect. And I'm going to start embodying that because yeah, sure. Well, I could be somebody, somebody aspires to, I would like to also think that there's, there's growth opportunity in terms of the fact that I'm making myself humanly accessible. Well, you you know, you always want to make, and this is what I teach my students and this is what I talk about in my organization when I'm talking to my direct reports, the people, you know, the people who work with me that report to me is, you know, just the idea of it's not about being perfect. It's about trying to get, trying to improve. And what's perfect today is not perfect tomorrow. So this concept of perfect, like there's just that I'm going to, I'm perfect at this. No one stays perfect at anything. Athletes don't, you know, pitchers in baseball don't stay, you know, they don't pitch, they don't pitch one perfect game. And then after every game after that, they pitch a perfect game. Um, so I, I've never thought about perfection. I've just always wanted to improve and be better than I was. And I think it's because, you know, it's, I was taught coping mechanisms and the idea behind those mechanisms is this won't, this will get you to be better and better every day. And, you know, perfection is just, it's the death, you know, perfection is the death of desire. It's, you know, if you want to be better, um, you, you can't necessarily look for perfection. You can't accept that perfection even exists. And I don't think it's, and I don't think it's fair to people. I don't think it's fair to people to expect things to be perfect. And also what's perfect in my mind is not necessarily perfect in somebody else's mind. So I always kind of stay away from saying, oh my God, that was perfect. You did that perfectly. It's like, wow, you did that really well. I'm really impressed. And it's because what I think may be perfect is not necessarily what really is perfect or perfect in that perfect, in that person's mind. So you just... You just have to really come at life just saying, I want to improve. I want to be better. I want to do the best I can. 
Um, and going going for perfection is it's just that's you know it's a black and white, and we can't live in a black and white. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's so many things I can say to that. So first of all, obviously, you know that Angela Duckworth she talks about grit, and she talks about um, I mean this is not this her the commentaries that she has here is in isolation here. Um, you know they talk about how you're not supposed to say excellent work you're supposed to be like you did a really good job because that encourages the mindset the growth mindset that you should continue working toward that um so that's exactly like what you were saying and then the other thing that i was thinking about i'm reading uh currently the barefoot executive by carrie wilkerson and it's an old book it actually came out probably about eight years ago but i don't think i was mentally ready for it and today like uh, earlier last week actually last friday i found it on my shelf and i was like you know let me just read it and i have to say it was it's like it's like perfect timing could have been like, you know, maybe two months earlier, but I don't know. It's perfect timing, but she was talking about how sports athletes, the way you were describing, you know, they, they're not, if you think about it, they're actually not even perfect. Think about, first of all, they talk about how expertise usually requires 10,000 hours of practice, but even so, I mean, can you imagine how many failures they had before they became successful? how many foul balls and how many like, you know, penalties and how many, all these things and how many injuries they've had to endure before they got to that point. And I think that's an awareness that most of us don't have. We look at them and we idolize them, but we don't realize that there's, there's the journey and the, you know, the, the, it's a destination. And even when they hit the destination, you're still never going to be hundred percent perfect. You're never going to have a hundred percent, you know, um, you might have a, a, a baseball game where there's all these strikeouts. You might never hit a, you might not even get a hitter, a no hitter game. You know, all those things, you'll always have those, oppor- those, those shortcomings. And yeah, and, and, and I start realizing that. And then I start realizing the other thing that I have an awareness of is um, that at the end of the day, no one really cares. Like they're focused on themselves. They're not so much focused on you. So you gotta, you gotta recognize that, um, making yourself more accessible and more approachable is, is, is incredibly, is incredibly more valuable than, I mean, you know, I think, I think what you're doing right now is, is really um, giving people faith that they don't have to be perfect, but they can still be amazing. You know, they can still make a tremendous impact. So thank you. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, when you, when you think about a baseball player, a, a, a good hitter in baseball has a 300 average. That means they hit the ball less than a third of the time. Yeah. And, you know, that's something I always think about when I'm approaching things. And, of course, you know, it varies. And there are some things we do in life that we should be able to do 99 out of 100%. And often we do. And it's, you know, it's it's also the amount of hours that need to be put in to practice and the different ways of thinking about things, you know, the different ways baseball players need to think about the game. Um, They need some kind of very, you know, uh, they need to do a lot of subconscious thinking, you know, and that has to do with hitting and and reading pitches. But simultaneously, they have to do big picture thinking about, you know, okay, if I do this, then what's, you know, how is this going to affect the game later on? So, yeah, no, no, no one in, I, I don't really think there's anyone in sports who is perfect. I mean, you might have a couple of people out there, some outliers, but the majority of people who are really good are really great at what they do. They're not perfect. They're never going to be perfect. And they don't get mired down in the idea of perfection because they understand that it's 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 fleeting. If, if you do reach perfection, it's only a moment in time and that you're going to go back to being imperfect right after that. Right, right. Yeah, you know, 
like you were saying, everybody's saying, I'm, I'm so happy that or they're glad that you're coming out and you're being very open about, you know, your, your past. And, you know, it's also something that I've been getting because I've been getting, I've been using LinkedIn lately and I haven't really, really been active on LinkedIn, but LinkedIn is a network of professionals and it's really an echo chamber. I'm sorry to say of people who are like, oh yeah, I've got to work really hard. You're going to do really amazing. But they don't talk about the fact that their struggles while you're working really hard. And I decided, you know, I'm going to start talking about my vulnerabilities and the fact that I was depressed. And my depression it was an impetus to start a whole business, a, a business and a lifestyle business at that, um, a focus on mental health. Um, well, not so much a focus on mental health. You know, the thing is that when I first started this, it was all, it wasn't even about mental health. But everybody's telling me, you're telling your story in the context of mental health, maybe it should be. And lately, you know, just being as vulnerable as I've been, people have been coming up to me and saying, thank you for being vulnerable. Thank you for being open. Thank you for that. You're really inspiring. And it's like similar. You're doing the same exact thing. There are very few people who want to do that. But it's, it's such a, like, it's a weird place. It's, it's a weird place to be. I would say that they're, like, it's important for us to start sharing our shortcomings. I think it's really, really valuable. Um, but I don't know if you consider them, like, shortcomings. But in the, in the context of the rest of the world, yeah, maybe it is. But it's not. It's like, wow, let's be human again. And people don't think about that. I, you know, I always viewed it as, you know, and there were, there were other things that happened in my life. I lost my father um, when I was 11. I mean, there, there were definitely other traumas in my life and things that went wrong. Um, but you learn from them. I mean, that's, that, that is, you know, they will affect you and it will be adverse and, you know, you will, you, you will need to find ways to kind of heal. But at the same time, as you heal and you find ways to heal, you also grow as a person. And, you know, I wouldn't be who I was again, you know, if I was not, if I had not been in that special ed program, I just, I would not be the person I am. I'm very comfortable in a diverse group. I'm very comfortable, comfortable in a neurodiverse group. Um, and it all just came down to just having this relationship and almost being a part of a community that was, you know, of people who were very different than who I grew up around or with. And my viewpoint on the world, maybe it changed, but it also helped me understand that my viewpoint is going to be different than others' viewpoints. And neither of our viewpoints are wrong. We just, we just experience the world differently at either different elevations or from different angles. And we have to figure out what's the common place there. And then, you know, just my experience in life helped me get there much sooner than, than I think most people. Yeah, yeah. What, what was, so you're, why do you think the original intent of, of your podcast changed? Um, no, so the, the original, okay. So um, the original intent of my business, I was launching a fragrance that uh, was- Yeah, all about, that, that I read, that yeah, I saw. That, that no, the podcast hasn't changed. The, the the mental the fo the focus that it, like it, that it's fragrance for I used to say it's fragrance for wellness and now it's fragrance for mental health and fragrance and, and people are like maybe you should start focusing on the postpartum depression and the depression world I don't know if that's the right way to go um, but the fact that it was I was just supposed to be a wellness brand it wasn't supposed to be a mental health uh, it wasn't supposed to be wellness is like everybody mental health becomes a little more niche and isolated and is it even the right direction I'm not entirely sure. Um, yeah, yeah. So I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how I'm responding to it, but I am going to do the best I can to, to figure it all out. Um, okay. Well, you know, when, when I was young, I used, you know, I, I used music for mental health and I think a lot of people do. 
Right. Um, and it's, you know, it's not something I do anymore. I might pick up a guitar every once in a while and strum it. But I mean, for, for a long period of time, it was that, that, you know, that sensation of, it was loud and obnoxious music, but, you know, it was that sensation that really helped me, you know, cope um, and treat some of, you know, some of the things that I was going through and some, you know, some, some issues with my wellness and my mental health. And, you know, it's always interesting how the senses play a part. And it's, I am always triggered by smells. Um, you know, there are particular smells in my life that bring me back to a time in my life or an individual in my life. Um, I lost one of my best friends about uh, seven years, six, seven years ago. Um, and he was a heavy smoker and he and I were bouncers together. Um, and whenever I smell, if I'm walking down the street and I smell his particular cigarette, I smile. And I'm not big on smoking. I don't really like public smoking. I think it's gross. Um, but I can't help but smile if I walk past somebody who smokes Marlboro Reds because it reminds me of being in front of a bar at two in the morning and joking around about Star Wars and, you know, all those things. So, you know, all of our senses are tied into our mental health and our wellness. You know, I smell delivery oil. You know, if I, if I smell diesel on something, I automatically am brought back to my childhood. So, yeah. you know, it's there. All of those senses are important. Sounds, smells, food. It's why food's so important to us. Yeah. Taste. It, is, it all ties us to our mental health. It ties us to, to times in our life that were both positive and negative. hundred percent, hundred percent. And, and that's, and, and it's funny cause they, it's, it's, it's true, but it's also, it could have the negative adverse effect too. There could be something that's very traumatizing. <laughs> so yes. you have to be mindful of that too. But at the same time, like most times when you start thinking about scent in, in the way that I'm trying to, to create it, I mean, I want people to kind of create memory based on their um, revisiting it in the morning. For example, I want you to put on perfume in the morning and I want you to revisit that throughout the day. You have an intention. You're putting it on in the morning probably because you want to have a great day. But, you know, the thing is that most people put it on in the morning and then they forget about it throughout the day. And, um, and it's, it, but the fact is that other people, when they come into contact with other people, then all of a sudden those other people like, are like, oh, you smell great. And that's really what you do. Most, most of the world, it's all about the outward acceptance versus the inward acceptance. If you were to, to put it on, feel good for yourself, and then revisit that throughout the day, it's life-changing. I have to say, it's life-changing. I put on perfume and like, you know, I have I have some on right now and like I'm trying to normalize the act of wrist sniffing, which is a very weird, <laughs> people are like, what? But at the same time, you know, you put on perfume and you put on cologne, you put on whatever it is on in the morning and you sniff your wrist throughout the day and it brings you back to that moment why you put it on in the morning, which hopefully, you know, that hopefully you, you had good intentions. Like they talk about gratitude and they talk about, um, you know, in, in, in the worlds of like uh, morning rituals, they talk about wake up and you say, today's going to be a great day. This is how you bring yourself back to that mindset. Because when you put it on, today's going to be a great day. You know, earlier when we were talking, you, you know, you said that like the, the experience that you had work in, in a diverse world in the, in the, in the public schools and every, everywhere else that, you know, it, it was like something that you, you, you didn't use the word, but I, I want to use the word regret. Like we look back at it, you're like, it's, it's, it's a, a shaping experience for you. And, you know, I went through, I would say like hell for a while. I even hit a rock bottom that I talk about the nine years of postpartum depression, but I don't talk about the two years within the last nine years of where I was basically exploited by somebody who um, saw that vulnerability and, use that 
and I, I look at it, I'm still, it's still completely my, my control, my experience. I have no regrets about what happened. Certainly I'm sad and I'm angry, but looking back, I'm just like, this needed to happen. And people always say, oh, I'm so sorry that this happened to you. And I'm like, I'm not, it's, it's something I'm very proud of. Something that helps me become a better version of myself. Just like- Exactly. You. Yeah. I mean, that, 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 I think that's the best way. I think we need to teach people, we need to teach people to accept the trauma that they've had in their life and understand that there, it is going to have adverse effects on them and their emotions, but at the same time to build and have it, you know, also be a source of strength that they can help others with and also simultaneously build on as they move forward in the future and not look, you know, looking back with regret on things, um, you're, it's never going to change it. It's never going to, you know, we talked about constant improvement. You're, it's, that's never going to get better. It's never going to change. Yeah. So why look back at it in such a negative way? You, know, you, you look at things in a negative way to avoid them, to say, okay. So if you look back at something in a negative way, it shouldn't be your look. You should look at it and go, okay, I made that mistake. I, I did that. I should never do that again. And this is what I should do instead. So you shouldn't really look back regret at all and then you know another thing i wanted to touch on when you were when you were talking about just putting on perfume in the morning i think that's a part of ritual and i think ritual is really really important for all of us um perfect example is i i was a regular i i i was a regular goer to starbucks do i think starbucks coffee is great no, but it was just a ritual in my morning. I would get up early. I would drive to a Starbucks that was the opposite direction of my job. I would go through the drive-thru. They knew me at the drive-thru. I would then park in the parking lot, and for about 15 minutes, I would just sit in the car, and I would drink a little bit of my iced coffee, and that was my ritual. Um, when the pandemic came and I stopped going out to get coffee, because um, we really followed the lockdown very seriously in my household, um, that was something that I missed. And I actually, um, I joined a coffee subscription service and I've been getting all these wonderful blends of coffee from all over the place. It's been really great. And I've been enjoying making myself coffee and experiencing that. But every once in a while, like I did this morning, when I'm down or I'm feeling anxiety, I have to do that ritual of driving to that particular Starbucks and getting a coffee there, spending 15 minutes in the parking lot, and then going home. And it, it's just a ritual that I need to have. And I think I think rituals are important for people, and no, no matter what they are, if it's how they put on perfume in the morning, how they comb their hair, um, how you know, walking their dog at a particular time, I think those rituals are really help for, helpful for us because it's order in our life, and it just reminds us that, you know, there are things that are solid in our life. Yeah, and I think... I mean, I'm hoping for myself in, in my perfume story and the fact that I can communicate this value proposition of potentially changing the world with like through mental health and through the application of scent in the morning is that people can create new rituals. Like for me, the, this ritual actually was an impetus to, it was, it, was, it was literally a domino effect for future rituals. My perfume excitement got me into like, I actually wanted to start using my voice again. So it, then it like brought me to karaoke and I was feeling confident around people. And then the next thing I started, I, I said, I'm going to start reading. I'm going to start, well, first I was starting to journal. Then I started to read every single day. Then I started to run every single day. Then it became like a little bit of an infatuation with fitness uh, and nutrition. And 
And if not for the fact that I started, I had one thing and I really stuck to it, the other things wouldn't have happened. But I think it was all about, it's like, it's, I, I'm reading, I, I just read the book, The One Thing um, by Gary Keller. And I, people, we were, we actually, I just talked about this in a previous podcast. I don't know if I loved it, but I start to think about it now. That one thing is like, he talked about the domino effect, about how one little tiny thing could, could start put, pushing other things that are much bigger down. And the more you have that, the the more strength of uh, whatever it is, the, the that that it's like physics, that power that can push things down based on the, the well, that little thing. So like a feather can push down eventually, like a pencil, and that pencil can push down something that's twice the size of a pencil. Um, yeah, I mean, for me personally, I think that 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 was my one thing. But I don't know if I love the idea of like focusing on one thing now for the rest of my life. I just think you have to kind of think about it in a bigger bigger picture versus a daily grind, which is how he talks about it. But still, nonetheless, it's it's valuable. Yeah, I I, I just I'm a I'm a and it, maybe it's because you know growing up, I grew up Catholic. There's a lot of, and and was very into my religion at a young age. And there's a lot there's a lot of just like the Jewish uh, religion. There's a lot of tradition and there's beauty in that tradition. Um, and you know. I just think it's important to have that ritual. It's almost like meditation. I got very into meditation, you know, when I first got into uh, administration, because that's what that was the big thing for 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 C-suite. You know, it's to get into meditation, mindfulness. You know, all leaders need to be mindful. And um, it was funny because I got into meditation and I started doing it and I got really into it. And then I realized I'm like, oh, my God, this is just saying Hail Mary's. This is just, you know, getting a, a rosary and saying, you know, I, I had beads and I would go to a, a Buddhist monastery that was down the street from where we lived and I would listen to chanting and I, I would get, I really got into it. And then I just, one day I woke up and I went, oh my God, this is no different than going to confession and then going and sitting, sitting in the church after confession and doing 20 Hail Marys for stealing uh, gum from, you know, from, from the, from the gas station. Um, you know, it's, and it's, it's, again, those rituals, it's tradition, but it's those rituals that just kind of become a everyday part of our life. And maybe what they do is they reset our brain to be a little bit more of, I don't have to think the big picture. Let me just think the small picture. And that gives the rest of my brain room to think, you know, to just relax and not think at all. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I was just listening to a podcast about meditation. Um, I, tried to focus on it. I couldn't do it. So I kind of uh, deviate from the norm on those things, but um, I, I have to, I have to reflect back on that later. Maybe I have to listen to it again, but let, let's talk about that. We talk about self-care uh, and you talk about meditation being part of that. You talk about your Starbucks ritual. Tell me a little bit about what your self-care looks like. Right now, my self-care is on pause, which is kind of sad. I was very, I got into martial arts late in life. I got into martial arts about a decade ago. So I was in my my mid thirties. Um, we had we had just moved to Dutchess County, New York, which isn't far from Westchester. Yeah. Um, very, very different than Albany County, more rural, um, more like the where I grew up, but not what I was used to living, not the environment I was used to living in. You know, I had lived in Albany for 10 years in Hartford before that. So it was an adjustment. I was kind of lost. I didn't really know what to do with myself. And I had just stepped into my first leadership position. And I was also becoming a parent for the first time. Um, and so I was really struggling with what can I do? I, I was all about working as many jobs as possible. I didn't leave, I didn't believe in self-care. 
Um, but I had reached a point where I was just like, wow, I'm going to break mentally if I don't find something. And, you know, I had music for a long time, but I couldn't really do that. So I got into Muay Thai and boxing and I was doing that and that was my self-care for a while. And then when I moved back to Albany, I got into Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Um, and right now I can't do any of those things. Those yeah. gyms are closed. And so, um, you know, that was my self-care is pretty much exercise. So like I said, my self-care was martial arts and, you know, maybe going to the gym and lifting weights and throwing around kettlebells every once in a while. Um, now my self-care is walking my dog. Yeah. My, yeah. my, my dog and I do two walks every day. We do a two mile walk in the morning and we do a three to four mile walk at night. Um, sometimes the boys come with me. They like last night they got on their bicycles and they rode with me a little more stressful, a little less self-care because I'm worried about them, you know, not, not paying attention and, and riding their bike dangerously. But I mean, that's right now where I'm at and it's good. It's like meditation. I'm just, I just keep walking step after step. And I, I come up with a really, uh, you know, I, I, I come out of it feeling much better. I come out of it with some really great ideas. And right now that's my self care. I've also really embraced some household chores and it sounds crazy, but using something like laundry and washing dishes, almost like a practice, I've gotten very, we have a dishwasher, but I want to wash the dishes every morning. And again, that's my morning ritual. My wife talked about it yesterday. That's my morning ritual. I like to get up in the morning and either make myself coffee, go and get coffee, come back and do the dishes. And I think it's it's those right now, I think a positive to everything we're currently going back to uh, going through is we're, we're going to have an appreciation for the simple things in life. And, you know, whereas I saw chores as a challenge in the past, I now see it as a really great opportunity to not only be a part of my household um, and do something positive for everybody around me, but it's it's an exercise. It's a practice. And I do feel better. I've washed the dishes. I, you know, as an executive director, I don't have a lot of fun. You know, things, things don't necessarily have a beginning and end for me. Almost everything I do is very open-ended. There's not a lot of things where it's just a, just a, a simple process. So if I can do the laundry, do the dishes, that's a, there's a beginning and an end to that. There's a particular way to do that. And I kind of find comfort in it. So, um, you know, for, so for people who are thinking about self-care and looking for activities, Hey, maybe it's time to start talking to your partner and seeing what other house things you can do around the household. Maybe it's time to get, you know, tell your cleaning person, hey, I'm not, I don't want you to do this because I'm going to take on that responsibility. But, you know, look, look for, look for the simple things in life and make that a practice. And you'll find that there's a med, there's almost a meditative quality to it. Yeah. Yeah. So for me personally, I actually really struggled in the beginning you know, like you say that you couldn't have, I'm glad, I'm glad you were able to, um, you know, you say you, you put your self-care on pause. I don't know if I agree with that. I think you just, you just displaced your self-care and you made it the way it works under circumstances. Like you were talking about how, uh, the pandemic changed your, your ritual to go to Starbucks, but you, you still found a way to practice that ritual and in a different way. And it's sort of the same thing for me. I struggled in the beginning. Um, also, I, I, I was a member of three gyms and just knowing that <laughs> I don't know when the gyms are going to be reopened. I mean, to some degree they are, but I don't know if I'm ready because, <laughs> and not because of the fact that I'm worried about coronavirus because I already had the virus in March, but I'm actually worried about going to the gym because I made the gym, 
I brought the gym to my house. So, you know, and so that that would have been part of my self-care, but okay, so my self-care is a little different now. My self-care is in my basement with a television uh, and some streaming videos and a couple of weights. And today I've been wobbling because I did such leg strength training that I literally am, my legs have been on fire for the last two days. But, you know, like, I guess I'm getting it done and I'm getting it done in a way that I, I doing some of the rest, uh, the, the exercises that it would have normally happened in the gym haven't like, I haven't been able to do that. So I've been able to kind of find alternatives that actually might even challenge me even more. And it's sort of the same way you, you found something that, you know, sure it's not martial arts, but like you're taking your walk and your walk and it's meditation. So you're finding some ways to like squeeze other things in while also, um, you know, making it work. I think it's amazing. I, and I, like, I feel like you were sort of apologetic in the beginning. You're like, well, it's kind of on pause, but you know what? It's not on pause. You're doing a pretty great job. And don't like, don't, don't let yourself down. Yeah. I, I, miss, I mean, that's the toughest part is, you know, we've, and, you know, two other, you know, po again, positives from all this is it's made us appreciate home much more. Yeah. Um, you know, I eat dinner with my, you know, we ate dinner all around the table last night. That was not the norm in my household before that, because, you know, I, I worked the job that I did and I, you know, I was always working before I got into administration, you know, I was always working a night job. Um, and because of that, you know, we, I rarely sat down with my family to, um, you know, I rarely sat down. The, the four of us almost never sat down to dinner until all of this happened. And now, you know, at first it was every night. Now it's probably three or four nights a week. The four of us sit around the table and that's just, you know, it, it's, it's just bringing us back to, I'm not, I, I'm not someone who necessarily thinks tradition is important, but I do think there's a reason why some things were established in tradition. And I think that's one of those things. So I think it's, it's good that, we're going back to, to enjoying our homes and being in our homes. I was never home, never home. I, you know, I grew up, I grew up where you didn't, you know, I didn't leave the farm I grew up on. I mean, there was two or three houses to visit, but you know, I never left the property. If we went downtown, we ran errands once or, you know, once every, uh, once every week or two weeks. And now it's, you know, I live a life where I feel like I'm constantly running. I was constantly running errands, constantly running to Target or or the store or running around. And now I'm looking back and I'm like, that was kind of pointless. And I wasn't spending enough time home and I wasn't spending enough time with my family, but I also wasn't spending enough time with myself. Right. So, you know, I, I do miss them running around, but at the same time, it's like, I think we've slowed down a little bit in this. And I think that's going to be good for all of our mental health. And I know that there was a study that came out recently that teens say they're actually, they've been less anxious the last six months than more. Adults are very anxious. We're all worried about getting sick and the economy. And I think young kids are anxious because this is a really weird change and they miss their friends. But I think there's, I, I see it in my neighborhood. There's a lot of people who are just out and about and just kind of like living a living life, living it simpler. And I think they might be onto something. Yeah, yeah. You know, there was an also, there was an article that came out in the New York Times about two or three months ago about how women who are pregnant, they don't hit, they, they're not, they're not coming to giving birth prematurely or preterm, which is pretty amazing. Because uh, also with the hypothesis that I think part of it is the fact that there's less stress in the world. I don't know about me. If I was pregnant, I'd be in big trouble. But 
Um, I will say that I think that's that that shows where we are as as a I guess as a as a culture in the society right now. It's very interesting. I think one thing that will come out of this is the idea of overscheduling our kids. My hope is that that's something you know we free we pretty much free range parent. And I'm lucky I live in a neighborhood that's very accepting of free range parenting. And we, we have a lot of parents who are kind of on the same page as us. Um, we we consciously were, were, we don't want to schedule our kids. And it's interesting to see now how alive our neighborhood is with kids riding their bikes everywhere. And there's there, there, are, there are classmates of my sons who I didn't realize we lived two blocks away from. Yeah. But they were all, you know, they were always scheduled. There was always an activity. There was always something going on. It is nice to walk. You know, when I take the dog for a walk, I'm walking around the neighborhood. It feels like the kind of neighborhood you hear about in fiction. There's kids playing wiffle ball in the middle of the street. And that's, I mean, I, I hope we find a really good balance. Once this comes to pass, I hope we do find a really good balance that kind of gives kids back that freedom and even gives adults back that freedom. You know, again, I don't, I'm stressed out over my job. I'm stressed out about the future. I'm not, but however, I do feel less stressed because all the little stuff that I, all the small stuff that I was sweating, I don't really sweat it anymore. Right. Yeah. I love that. Uh, I can't say we have the idyllic uh, fictional setting that you just described, but um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how it's going to be for our kids, honestly. But um, I guess if I need, if I, if I want that kind of lifestyle, I'm going to Albany, that area. So I'll keep it going. That there. area, the capital region. I would suggest the capital region of New York to anybody. It's a really great, cool. really great area. But yeah, we, it's, it's, it was interesting because we moved into a very quiet neighborhood, and it's no longer a quiet neighborhood. We moved into a neighborhood. We thought we were the only people with kids in our neighborhood. We slowly met other families, but. Now, since the pandemic's happened, especially in the summer, there is always a kid yelling somewhere off in the distance, and I absolutely love it. Yeah, that's awesome. Awesome. Um, cool. Well, let me let me ask you, um, what if I can if if you can give an earlier version of Scott's a piece of advice, what would you tell him? Do no harm. Um, that's actually been a big thing in, in, in um, I have for the last three or four years really concentrated on how organizations can communicate uh, with their staff, how staff can communicate with their peers, how staff and managers and supervisors and leaders can, you know, the lead and the leaders can talk to each other. And I think it's really important, especially in our current environment, is the idea of uh, do no harm uh, when you're communicating with people. Um, you know, we, thanks to the internet, conversation and discussion is now a battle. There's a winner and a loser. Um, and I think that's really sad. And I think we've lost something as a society. Um, so when I talk to people, when I have conversations, even if they're, you know, even if they're hard conversations, even if, if, if it's my neighbor, you know, he had a party way too late last, you know, last weekend. And, you know, I don't want to hear people yelling in my street at four in the morning. How do I approach that conversation in a way where um, I get them to understand how important it is and how it will benefit them and myself and not to hurt their feelings and not to not to come out of the conversation as a winner or a, or a loser. Come out of the conversation where everybody grew and kind of moved towards something better. So it's always with that idea of you enter it with doing no harm and you might still do harm, but as long as your intention is to do no harm, that's a, 
that that's my piece of advice. You know, take a breath, breathe, don't be angry, don't approach it as a win-lose situation, just approach it as you need to communicate something and you want to see an effective change. All right. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you. And where can everybody follow you and find you online? So, I mean, for the most part, I'm mostly on Twitter. That's my big, uh, that, that's, that's my big, uh, that's my big kind of communication tool. And that's at S-C-J-A-R-Z-O-M-B-E-K. So it's S-C, Jarzombeck. And Twitter is pretty much the primary way um, to see. And I, I'm a blogger for a local newspaper, the Times Union. So if you go to my Twitter page, you'll see a link to my blog as well. And you can always check out Albany Public Library. And I always advise people wherever you live, check out your public library, see what your public library is doing. Um, when public libraries are back open, they're amazing places. But right now they're doing fantastic work helping people virtually and helping people by being out in the community. So check out Albany Public Library, but really search out your local public library in your community and see the amazing work that they're doing. All right, thank you so much. I really appreciate the time and um, yeah, yeah, this is great. Good, I'm glad, I'm glad, I'm glad it worked out. Yeah, yeah, thank you, thank you so much. Thank you all again for tuning in. This is your host, Tamar Weinberg of the Common Sense Podcast. Till next time, 